slowness, spiritual dullness in our lives. The Apostle Paul also spoke of sins, and he provided a list. And sometimes people get frustrated with his list because Paul seems to, to take the sins that we have on the don't do this ever with the sins that are, well, this is part of my daily life. Yeah. And he just mixes them all together. I mean, listen to his list. He says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, get your dictionary, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, orgies, and the like. And those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul's list, and he has several of them, have, have this challenge because he tends to take some things that are like, ah, no way, but ah, maybe it's okay. Later, he blows all of our minds when he says, greed is idolatry. He had a much larger sense of idolatry than we do. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, you see Jesus moving from just a surface level, exterior picture of sin to one that's deeply internal and considered. You know, Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount of anger, lust, and self-justification. But when he, he speaks of murder, he started with murder, and he says, oh, and by the way, that's related to anger in your heart. And then he speaks of committing adultery, and then he says, it's like entertaining thoughts of lust in your mind. And then he, he starts with, oh, easy, quick divorce, and the self-justification of those are throwaway people. So Jesus had this movement as well to say, there's things that we see on the surface, but there's something deeper going on in the heart. So when Jesus spoke of sins. He knew that there was always something unobserved to the general eye. In fact, that's how we prefer our sins to be most of the time, is unobserved to the general eye. Dallas Willard tells a story about a two-and-a-half-year-old girl named Larissa. Larissa was spending the afternoon with her nana, with her grandmother, and she was had discovered how to make warm chocolate. Warm chocolate. It was mud. And she had taken water and she would stir it and she said, it's warm chocolate now. And finally, she had made such a mess that her nana came and got involved and cleaned her up and tried to clean up the mess and, and then said, please stop doing that and turned her chair so she could watch Larissa. Well, Larissa soon returned to her warm chocolate routine. And finally, she, she turned and said, Nana, don't look. Don't look, Nana. And Nana, as Dallas Willard says, is a little bit codependent and said, okay. And, and sort of turned away. But three times more, Larissa, two and a half years old, said, Nana, you're not looking, are you? 
You don't walk it, Nana. Nana, don't walk. John Ortberg goes on to comment on this, and he says, anytime we choose to do wrong or to withhold doing right, we choose hiddenness as well. It may be that out of all the prayers that are spoken, the most common one, the quietest one, the one we acknowledge the least is simply this. Don't look at me, God. Don't look. It was the very first prayer spoken after the fall. When God came to walk in the garden to be with the man and the woman and called out, where are you? Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. So I hated myself. In other words, don't look at me, God. Something happened in the young man's life in this story that radically altered his life. And as a paralyzed person who was likely a fairly young man, the assumptions of the day would have been that well, he had gotten what he deserved. That there must have been some sort of sin in his life that brought about this pain, this paralysis. Or it was a sin in his family's life that had now he was paying the dues for. And so it had been brought out. And much of his life would have been hidden, lived within the confines of his space, hidden on his mat, unable to move, but hidden. The society of Jesus, in his day, assumed that your physical condition might reveal the situation of your heart and your soul. It might reveal your sin. Jesus challenged that impulse on many occasions. On one occasion, the disciples were telling him about some people from Galilee that Pilate had killed and had taken their blood and mixed it with their sacrifices at the temple. And so Jesus quickly goes to what they were after, and he says, do you think they were worse sinners than anyone else because this happened to them? Indicators it might not actually be so. But on this occasion, Jesus allows for the connection. Man, your sins are forgiven. The paralytic was seen. The crowd had kept them out of the house, but his group of friends who were so determined, because I believe this young man was determined to get in front of Jesus and to be seen by Jesus. But perhaps the desire to be unseen was now a small thing compared to the desire in his life to be seen by Jesus. Have you ever had that moment where you're sitting in an emergency and you're so desperate to be seen by a doctor? Most of the time, we want nothing to do with a doctor. But if you're in an emergency, you want to be seen. And after hour one, two, three, four, five, have you been there? Six, God, will they ever see me? 
You're so desperate to be seen by the doctor. Because you have faith. Surely the doctor will be able to do something for me. And these friends and this man on a mat had faith that Jesus could do something for him. And Jesus looks at him and sees their faith, the scripture says. And so Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven. It immediately created a controversy in the heart of those who were listening. The crowd was there, and inside the crowd there were Pharisees who had a deep interest in how the people of Israel lived and applied the Word of God in their life. They were very devout to try to figure out how do you follow God, Yahweh, every day? How can you be obedient to his word in your everyday life. In fact, they were in many ways heroes of the faith because they persisted in this study of how can we work it out, whether we're in Jerusalem or we're in Israel or if we've been carried away because of business or even by a tyrant, how will we follow God anywhere? And their minds begin to go immediately. Well, who does this guy think he is? Forgiving sin. Only God can forgive sin. Now, they also knew that only God could forgive sin and that God forgives sin, but they also had a proper channel for how that was managed. You needed the sacrificial system to get going in Jerusalem to be assured of the forgiveness of sin. You needed the priest to do the work. And so they had no assurances. They had actually heard no confession from this young man. But Jesus, seeing their faith, says, man, your sins are forgiven. I do like how the NIV softens the moment a little bit and says, friend. I imagine Jesus might have said friend, but but the, the, the word is actually man. Hey man. Your sins are forgiven. Started a controversy. Could Jesus, did he really have authority to forgive sins? I mean, it shouldn't have been odd to them if they had thought about the prophet Nathan, that when he heard David's confession, the prophet Nathan says, you will not die. God has forgiven your sin. But there's the association. Unforgiven sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. And it was the story of this man's life. It might be the story of your life and mine. Haven't there been times in yours, like I have, where I've wondered, have I really been forgiven? Has God really forgiven me? Does my 
behavior in the past or my decisions, the things I did, the attitudes of my heart, has that actually been forgiven or does it still follow me? Is it something that still defines me? And to be carrying that is to carry with you guilt, shame, and fear. Can the consequences be mitigated? And often then we move into a realm of comparison. Well, at least I'm not like that sinner. I'm a sinner, but thank God I'm not like that one. We're programmed to do this. In fact, many of us, being quite smart, actually have tremendous bias to self-justify ourselves. And to say, well, I'm, I'm really not that bad. But sin does define, it diffuses our responses to God. And it actually creates a trajectory of death in our lives. Perhaps none has illustrated this so profoundly as Tolkien in his work, The Lord of the Rings, around the character of Smeagol. Smeagol, who finds that ring and immediately upon finding it, kills someone so that it's his. It's mine. It's mine. And that move begins to define his life till we meet him as a strange character now in on the film, on the, in movies, who's just barely a man. As Aragorn states, his malice gives him a strength hardly to be imagined. While Gollum may remember things like friendship and love, he's now a slave to the ring and knows only treachery and violence. It's mine. It's mine. And so now the very thing is actually defining and shaping his life. Does our sin shape and define our lives? Is there hope for us that we can actually be different? On the surface, we look great. We clean up very well in the university. I mean, who wants to see a doctor who doesn't clean up well? Where am I talking? You want a doctor who cleans up well, right? Dr. Mary Poplin, in writing about her time with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, shares that she spent a immense amount of time with the missionaries of charity there. But every day, she tried to avoid being the one who took care of a five-month-old infant. This infant was deformed, constantly sick, and often miserable. Dr. Poplar says that she found ways to avoid feeding this child, but one day it was unavoidable. When the feeding time was over, she says, the babies were falling asleep, and I was ready to go, and I happened to glance down, and there was this child laying in his vomit. I looked for someone to tell. She says, I left the room, and the few adults that were there all had babies in their hands. So she says, I reluctantly decided to go, to stay and clean up the mess. I put on my apron, lifted out the baby, helped him onto my shoulder, began to gather the dirty sheets, and wipe up the mess. 
And as I was cleaning, I heard a muffled sound from the infant in my arms. Tears were pouring out of his eyes, and the only sound he could make was a convulsive sob. She says, as I looked at him, I saw in myself what Jeremiah called the desperate wickedness of the heart. I realized that I had approached this task with a spirit of resistance and impatience. I had thought very little, or even at all, about this child and his needs, other than to be clean. As I threw the sheets into the laundry and bathed his misshapen body and changed his clothes, God was convicting my heart. I held him tightly. I looked at him, rocked him, and prayed. In a short time, he was asleep. But I must tell you that the moment I saw him weep, weeping and realized the wickedness in my own heart, I knew it was sin. There was no doubt in my mind that this is what Jesus meant when he said, Out of the heart come evil thoughts. And I asked Christ to forgive me, to change me. And in those moments as I rocked the baby, I could feel Christ's work inside my spirit just as surely as if he was sitting next to me. Get up. Pick up your mat. And walk. Live. This is the word of Jesus. It heals not only our souls, but also our bodies and how we experience others. And they experience us. Tim Mackey recently was speaking about an experience in his own life. You may know him because he's the Bible Project guy. You've listened to his voice on the Bible Project videos for years now. This past year, he was sharing about what God had done in his life during the pandemic. Tim Mackey was invited to speak at 24-7 prayer, and he said, I'm really nervous here with you all. He says, I'm a Bible guy. You are the prayer people. I'm a Bible geek, a Bible nerd. You are the prayer people. <laughs> I'm really nervous. And he said, honestly, because I wasn't sure it worked. I loved the scripture and the mysteries and the beauty of the language and what it showed me about God, but I wasn't sure that prayer worked. He goes on to talk for the next hour about how God had begun to change his life. And he shared that through a series of events, God was warming and changing his heart, and he realized my soul is so deformed by my worldview. It's sinful. Can God do anything for the soul so that I really see this world as God sees this world? He went to the doctor one day because he had a pain in his throat. And the doctor was like, wow, I haven't seen something like that in such a long time. It's just a huge abscess and growth that's growing there in your throat. Tim was like, well, this isn't good. And the doctor said, I don't see that there's anything for us to do except to schedule you for surgery. And so Tim began to ask people to pray. He began to worry about it. He says, you know, the day of the, 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 the moment came where I was supposed to get my, my throat 
operated on, and all these people were praying, and one person had even prophesied, God started healing him, he's like, I guess it's going to be with the doctor. He spent the morning doing Lego with his kids. Like, there's nothing else to do. Let's all be dad. So he spent time. Finally, he realized it's, it's time to go, and as he got up, he felt something changing in his throat. He went on to the doctor and they did an examination and they're like, there's nothing there. It's all clear. You can go home. A few weeks later, he was sharing this with, with the group and, and was just so open and delighted about the mystery of God that, that God had healed his body. He says, I don't know why. I'm really asking that God would heal my soul. And afterwards, a woman came up to him and said, I've heard you teach a lot, Tim. Do you remember your teaching about nephesh? Nephesh, the word for soul, or being a living person. What is it also the word for? Through Nephesh. She said, God healed your nephesh. He is healing your soul. Do you need a fresh word from the Lord? To heal your soul. To forgive your sin. To heal your soul. The psalmist says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you. For we were laid low in our sin, and you allowed yourself to be laid down. We were powerless, paralyzed from your Just 